I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Just picture, if you can, a painting. We're sitting on a little hill overlooking a road. It's a nice day. Standing to our left is the lower half of a twisted, dead tree, smooth where the bark has been stripped or fallen off, some vines twirling up around it. The sky has a peachy, late afternoon quality. The road winding to our right down the hill has a great ankle-deep puddle across it. A person wearing blue shorts and carrying a sack of something or other is guiding some cows across the puddle toward a quaint Dutch city in the distance. You gotta wonder, what does it all mean? This is from the 17th century, uh, an artist named Jacob van Roysdale, and he's really one of the great landscape painters of his time. Alan Chong is the director of the Courier Museum in Manchester, New Hampshire, where this painting, View of Edgemon by the Sea, lives. And what he'll tell you is that there are all sorts of theories about why Von Roysdale painted this scene. But we don't really know. Landscape is a a kind of art for which there is very little to say. You know, one has to project a lot of extra meaning into what you see. And it's kind of open-ended. And maybe for that reason, this kind of art hasn't always commanded a lot of respect. For example, a group of Renaissance-era Italian critics once said... That landscapes... Oh, you know, they're for simple minds. You know, they're for people who really don't really understand the complexities of classical allegory and historical scenes. So you can just look at a painting like, like this landscape and be happy and enjoy it. Yeah, there's a lot to, there's a, yeah, there's a lot there. <laughs> that last skeptical comment comes to us from producer Taylor Quimby, who for the last couple of months has been convinced that there's an episode of Outside In buried somewhere inside paintings like this one. I mean, am, am I right in sort of saying that there is something encoded in this? Maybe. Um, I, I think the answer is not so clear. It's like he's going to uncover the environmental version of the Da Vinci Code or something. So, so what's, let's hit some of the weird ones that you were mentioning. What's funny about this quest, though, is that he does not know the first thing about art. But what do you think about Bob Ross? 
Uh, who? Or, you know, very, very little. Guy with a big afro who had a, a TV show. I'm forgetting the name, but... No, I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. Sure about it. But I must say he has stuck with it, and while he isn't exactly Dan Brown, he's come up with something worth hearing. Even if he had to ask a lot of smart people some very basic questions along the way. What do you think I should know most about... Um, what are the questions that I'm not asking that, that would that be helpful for me? There is a series of books quite good for this. Uh, Art History for Dance. It's a big book, but very easy to get into it. <laughs> yeah, it's a good book. <laughs> that sounds silly, right? But it's good. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. I'm, I'm, you're absolutely right. That's probably exactly where I need to be. Yeah, yeah. This is Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown, and today, producer Taylor Quimby is bringing us landscape art for the rest of us. The dunces, the dummies, <laughs> join me. You're none of these things. <laughs> this yeah. is a tour de force. It is a survey of how humans have interpreted our landscapes using art throughout history and how that might be changing as society changes. Well, thank you, Sam. I, um, that's not how I describe it, but <laughs> let's, uh, let's go with that. And today we have an enhanced podcast experience for this Outside In art exhibit. For those who are so inclined, we've got pictures of all of the works of art mentioned in this story posted to our website and our Instagram. And we'll give you a heads up whenever there's a new one to look at. And the slideshow starts with that first one from Von Roysdale that we talked about just now. Should we do it? Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Let's see what else have we got. Uh, you want to go in order? Yeah, yeah. The Courier Museum is closed on Tuesdays, so my tour with Alan Chong felt very intimate. The hum of the air conditioning, the echo of our footsteps. It was like being in an empty church. I've got to say, this is really cool going around a museum um, when it's closed. But along with that sense of majesty, I will admit to feeling a twinge of embarrassment, a wobbly feeling that I don't speak the language. Now, if you have ever felt this way in a museum or looking at a piece of art, Alan is here to put us both at ease. I'm interested in art history, but it can be overwhelming. There's so many time periods and uh, isms. You know, there's romanticism and classicism and all oh, these things. Oh, just forget about all that. That doesn't matter. You know, knowing knowing that the you know the 17th century Holland might have been called the Baroque or the Golden Age. You know, we can't use those terms. They're historically inaccurate, and they don't really tell you very much about a work of art. And do they really help us? Sometimes. But you can avoid all of that stuff. It's more important to, to look at a single work of art and what it might be saying, what it might be doing, and more importantly, what kind of emotional or intellectual triggers it has for you as a viewer. So, art lovers and students of history, apologies in advance. In our museum, we're throwing away the classical conventions in favor of a more approachable, if less accurate, history. And we will begin our tour of this outside-in art museum in a room dedicated to what I'm calling The Animals Are Awesome Age. These images are memories of long-forgotten dreams. Is this their heartbeat or ours? This is Werner Herzog from his documentary The Cave of Forgotten Dreams. And here, if you're following along online or on Instagram, is our second piece of art. Madame Baffy takes us down to the farthest chamber of the cave, the mysterious chamber of the lions. Cave paintings made from a mixture of charcoal and animal fat. 
This is a place called, and uh, I'm just going to have Sam do this because he makes fun of my French, the Chauvet Bondarc Cave. Thank you. You're welcome. More than a dozen species of animals are depicted here. Deer, lions, rhinos, hyenas, paintings that date back some 32,000 years. This cave is in southern France. The air is literally toxic with radon and CO2. I've read that more modern folks have climbed Everest than have seen these paintings in person. In his documentary, Werner Herzog asks, Will we ever be able to understand the vision of the artists across such an abyss of time? If I may, Werner, I will speculatively answer with a no. But animals are the subject of nearly every early cave painting discovered. And I think, 32,000 years later, the basic explanation is pretty straightforward. Animals were our predators and our prey, our companions and our competitors. And perhaps even then, early humans thought that these creatures were beautiful, elegant. These caves might have been used to tell stories or do drugs, I don't know. But certainly, people from this time were focused on the creatures of this world as something worth capturing. In spirit, and eventually, in real life too. Okay, enough of this room. Let's fast forward thousands and thousands of years to... The Age of Painting Stuff You Own! And the guest curator of this gallery will be... Okay, let's introduce myself. I'm Niels Büttner. I'm a professor of art history in Stuttgart, Germany. In this room, we'll be lumping together, well, thousands of years of art. Because from the ancient Greeks all the way until and through medieval Europe, a lot of artwork was commissioned specifically by wealthy folks. And what was the common theme? A thing that wealthy people from multiple cultures and multiple centuries liked to see? If you are the owner of a piece of land, you show a country that is your country. Property. Ownership. Land that is my land. And I don't mean in the our land sense of my land. I mean like my land. Aspects of the modern art world, the lack of diversity, pieces purchased by investors for millions of dollars, it can feel really exclusionary. And the truth is, that type of exclusion is built into the foundations of this kind of art history. Now, there have been all sorts of landscapes painted over the years. Heavenly landscapes, hellish landscapes, historical landscapes. But in the one genre of painting specifically designed to focus on the beauty of the outdoors, the quote-unquote European landscape painting, there is a surprising lack of variety. I see some little villages there. Peasants at work. Gardens, crops. Peasants working. This is not sound of me from the museum, by the way. It is a creative dramatization of my reaction. I recorded this in a stairwell. A clock tower, some peasants in the fields. People thought that all what is good for men is, is beautiful. So if you have vineyards and you see the grapes and, you, uh, and they promise a good vine, this is beautiful because it's good for um, the people. But if you go to a dark forest with wild animals, it, they are dangerous. And so a dark forest is not beautiful. As opposed to the cave painters, who chose to paint both predator and prey, the history of European landscape art is focused on the aspects of the natural world that have been and can be dominated, owned, and harnessed. Landscape is when you're standing outside of things. This is Beverly Natus, an artist focused on ecological issues and a professor at the University of Washington, Tacoma. It's um, very much a representation of 
dominant culture, you know, Christian hegemony, manifest destiny, white supremacy, all of those different systems of oppression create this sense of ownership over the land. There's a famous British painting by a guy named Thomas Gainsborough. It was made in 1750, and it's a portrait of a newly married couple, Mr. and Mrs. Andrews. This is the third piece for those following online. Let's take a look. Mrs. Andrews is sitting on a pretty little bench in front of a wide scene of the English countryside, sort of like an iPhone panoramic. Mr. Andrews is standing beside her, rifle casually balanced in the crook of his arm. These two are members of the landed gentry, aristocrats who made a living just from owning property. In a BBC film called Ways of Seeing, critic John Berger puts it this way. They have become not a couple in nature. Theirs is private land. If a man stole a potato at that time, he risked a public whipping. The sentence for poaching was deportation. Without doubt, among the principal pleasures this painting gave to Mr. and Mrs. Andrews was the pleasure of seeing themselves as the owners of their own land. Again and again, you see the same geographies in these European landscape pieces. Ironically, what you don't see are a lot of the celebrated landscapes that we find interesting today. Jungles, tundras high mountain peaks. These vistas were still seen as dangerous. The Alps were crossed, but it was seen as a very dangerous thing to go over the Alps. Nobody would have gone to climb up a mountain to go to the snow zone because this is only dangerous. People didn't climb them, and people didn't paint them. And they found this kind of landscape really, really ugly. Ugly? Ugly? Can you believe it? But let us leave this European history for a moment and skip over to another gallery in the Outside In Museum, one where you will find almost the exact opposite. Lots and lots of mountains, not much else. Well, when you look at the Chinese landscape painting, you saw the same thing again and again in different dynasties, always with this same subject matter, mountains, rivers. And that's why Chinese landscape painting is called Shan Shui Hua. Shan Shui Hua. Mountain water painting. This wing of the museum is dedicated to what I'm calling the mountains as metaphor movement. And our curator here... Yeah, my name Lian Duan. I'm from Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. Paintings in this wing start way back, at least 1,500 years ago, when Chinese artists, poets, and scholars were painting mountains and rivers on silken fabrics with black India ink. These mountains and rivers are doing something that the commissioned landscapes of Europe do not. They encode philosophy, the philosophical idea we call the Tao. That's the commonality to Chinese, all Chinese landscape art, the classical, the traditional Chinese landscape painting. The Tao, sometimes translated into English as the way, is a part of Chinese philosophy, religion, even politics. And it's represented here through visual artistic traditions, which you can see for yourself if you're following online. Artwork number four is an example of a mountain water painting. The artists are neither concerned with realism or with ownership, 
Here, the flow of a waterfall into a stream and the mist floating up, or a trail winding through the mountains. These images are a sort of philosophy in themselves. Road in English is also way, and way is the translation of Chinese 道 Therefore, in Chinese landscape painting, you always see a small zigzag mountain road, and also like the water going beyond the mountain tops, going beyond the peaks. In the West, we use another term. We say transcendental. That's how you go beyond this world to another world, the, the philosophical world, to reach the Tao. Now, I don't want to fetishize or appropriate ideas that I don't really understand. And the Tao is definitely that. But there is something familiar here, a tradition, an urge even, that you might relate to. An urge to see ourselves in the world around us, to project our own feelings onto landscapes and ecosystems. Chinese artists prefer to, to express their internal ideas, internal feelings, their sentiment in their landscape painting. In other words, landscape is not really a representation of the literal order but an expression of their internal order, or we say their internal world. The Europeans, by the way, eventually got here too. About 200 years ago in the Romantic time, there is a concept we call sublime. Sublime could be comparable to the Chinese Tao. Here again, our European curator, Niels Büttner. One's first respond to the sublime was fear, a sense of terrifying danger, but once it becomes clear that one is not actually threatened, the feeling can change into delight. Looking at high mountains or stormy landscapes can give you a good feeling to know that you're not in a storm, but in your warm home and look at a painting. This part of the museum, the part where the outdoors are used as a way of representing something internal is where we see some really important work from an art history perspective, a place where art becomes more and more abstract and more and more conceptual. You know, what is the minimum requirement to be considered a landscape? That's a very good, that's a very good question. Is this a landscape? It could be. This is kind of kinky. I mean, you know. <laughs> Well, I can see a moon here, so okay, let's, let's start with this. But, frankly, we're going to cruise right on by this section, because crucial as it may be to art history, this is not the most important stuff in our outside-in museum. And before we jump again in time, I want to focus on one more gallery from the 19th century. I'm going to call this one The Age of the Travel Brochure. And here again at the Courier Museum is director Alan Chong. So this is the 19th century. See, this is all white mountains. This artist, Cropsey, painted this in England for a European consumer. So he's creating this landscape to represent America to Europe. We're standing now in front of painting number five, if you're following online. It's a massive view of Mount Washington, or someplace in the White Mountains anyway. There are beautiful fall colors, a crisp white mountain peak in the sky, which I can tell you from personal experience, 
And the artist hasn't quite gotten it right. That's not quite what it looks like. Does yeah. this look like Mount Washington? It's pretty close, right? A little, bit, a, little bit craggier. Yeah. And a little bit higher than it looks in reality. I mean, uh, the artist is trying to tell a story. It's a narrative. And like selective storytelling, there's a certain bit of exaggeration. You downplay you know, certain kinds of things. And, um, well, it's like a movie. Cropsey was one of a number of artists from what is called the Hudson River School, a group that famously painted a number of iconic American landscapes at a time when the idea of America was still being shaped. What they were trying to do and how their work was used, those two things are not necessarily the same. Again, here's artist Beverly Natus. The Hudson River School, I think, was trying to talk about the sacred in the land, you know, what they were experienced as divine. Um, but the work was then bought by wealthy people who saw it as a kind of um, advertising for the West. And for this reason, you might also choose to put these works in that previous gallery, The Age of Painting Stuff You Own. Um, it was like, oh, look at all this land that we can go and own. No one's on it. The spaces appeared to be empty, or if there were animals or people in them, they were not considered significant. And so they became, um, you know, uh, propaganda. Who bought the work? It was the robber barons who bought the work, and they were the ones who were logging and mining. In all of this Western art history, what you don't yet find is an age in which artists are depicting the natural world as something vulnerable, as something that needs our protection. Well, not in the official textbooks anyway. All of that art historically has wound up in different places, in museums of natural history. Indigenous views of nature, one is part of it. And that didn't get represented until activist movements, civil rights movements, anti-war movements, feminist movements began to question all of the values of dominant culture. Environmental art meets environmental activism when Outside In continues. Hey, Nate here. Have you ever dreamed of going on the voyages of some of the most famous and not-so-famous explorers in history? If so, then you should check out the Explorers podcast. Host Matt Breen takes you into jungles and frigid wastelands, across deserts and oceans, and to the top of great mountains as you explore the triumph, glory, and tragedy of each explorer. There are extraordinary stories of Shackleton, Magellan, Cook, Lewis and Clark, and so many other daring people from all across the world and from throughout history. Each explorer's story is told in rich, immersive detail, and each topic is given as much time as needed to tell the whole tale, ranging from 30 minutes to 10 hours. There's something for everyone. Find the Explorers Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or go to explorerspodcast.com to learn more. Welcome back. I'm Sam Evans-Brown, and today, producer Taylor Quimby has been walking us through the Outside In Art Exhibition, art that tells us something about the natural world and how we use it. 
Up until this point, we've often had to look back at art and extract meaning from it, from a sort of anthropological point of view. But today there's more awareness around environmental issues that are pushing some artists to be much more explicit about what they're doing. I mean... You know what I'm talking about, right? Climate change. Climate change. Climate change is already damaging the United States. The world is on fire, and our governments are letting it burn. How dare you? People are suffering. People are dying. Here's Taylor. In the last 60 years or so, a series of art movements have sprung up in and around environmental activism. But to get into this next part of history, We'll have to leave the climate-controlled environment of the gallery and step outside. Which is exactly what artists started doing in the mid-19th century. Um, if you have a paint tube, you, it's easily to paint outside. This again is Niels Büttner, talking about a tradition called... <clears throat> Sam? Plein air. Painting in the outdoors with an easel, oils, and a wide-open view. It was a tradition that sprang from technology. Paint in lightweight tubes, for starters. Second... The invention of the steam train that made it possible to go outside Paris by train in a few hours. And last of all, industrialization at large. For aesthetic reasons and for personal reasons, painters wanted to get away from the cities. In, in most parts of the cities, they had, um, they, yeah, they, they had shit all over. And it was, a, a big town was really a stinky thing. And to go outside to the forest and have fresh air was uh, really uh, good for the painters and um, made nature more attractive. And this... Getting out into the world to create your art, it's a tradition that's still with us today. Oh, that wind's picking up. It is. That's the other reason why I'm under here. So I only get it from like two sides. <laughs> it's a subculture. And so part of that subculture is, oh, well, we're going to hike in four miles, you know, and let's, let's pack as light as we can. You know, there's all of that. It's very challenging. I mean, you have to deal with the cold, the wind, the rain, the bugs. This is Alicia, Betty, and Marlene. They and two other members of a plein air group from New Hampshire have gathered on a 40-degree morning in November in the dirt parking lot of J.T. Farnham's famous clams in Essex, Massachusetts. They're all painting a picture-perfect salt marsh estuary just off the side of the road. Browns and tans and oranges. Orange and golden. Well, it must be, it must be hard for a morning painting because... You know, those colors last sometimes just a seconds. few minutes. They last seconds. It's a fleeting thing when the sun's coming up. There is a wonderful humility to the plein air tradition. It's a sort of speed challenge for artists looking to achieve some kind of meditative flow. A tradition that celebrates a certain hominess, a quaint brand of nostalgia... But despite the fact that its origins are at least indirectly related to industrial pollution, it is a tradition that has largely been seen as separate from political concerns. That's not the case for all of the art that's moved outside. Here's artist Beverly Natus. Uh, I would say that it started in the 60s, and, um, and artists began to question everything. In the 1960s, an influential book called Silent Spring. This is one of the nation's bestsellers. And other works helped give rise to the modern environmental movement. In her groundbreaking book, Silent Spring, Rachel Carson... We have to remember that children 
born today are exposed to these chemicals from birth. Artwork inspired and was inspired by this sort of activism in a circular chicken or the egg sort of way. I remember reading Silent Spring when I was in junior high and being like, oh my God. The balance of nature is built of a series of interrelationships. Around this time, you start to see new branches of art, one in particular that rejected the commercial art world in favor of work that wasn't just made outdoors, but was exhibited there as well. This branch was called earthworks, or land art. And though it was environmental, sort of, it was not exactly eco-friendly. You'll see artists, um, particularly white male artists, who are still kind of uh, making an impression upon the earth, showing their power in relation to earth. Let's take, for example, a piece by a man named Robert Smithson. Arguably the most famous work he did that you might look up is called Spiral Jetty. This is eco-artist Aviva Romani, who is also helping us curate this last gallery of our exhibit, which I am calling The Age of Change. The piece she's talking about, number six in our online gallery, is a massive sculpture. But it doesn't depict a landscape. It is a landscape. He organized a number of rocks at a shoreline to create a pattern. This piece is, as the title describes, a huge fiddlehead-shaped spiral on the shore of Utah's Great Salt Lake. It was made in 1970 by bulldozers and dump trucks. He wrote about his environmental concern, but... The works themselves were not environmentally sensitive. At a time when environmental concern was growing, the process that actually created Spiral Jetty was in itself inherently damaging to the ecosystem. And today, 50 years later, as the jetty has slowly eroded away, the question of how to deal with this artistic paradox continues. People are now concerned about and confused about whether they should preserve that work. It would have to be at the expense of the local environment that might be organic and might be essential. Out of the Earthworks movement has come, and of course I am jumping ahead here in time, artwork that is not just environmental in its shape or message, but artwork that aims to literally preserve or rehabilitate natural spaces. The reaction to works like Spiral Jetty, which raised environmental awareness without examining its own impact, and reaction, I think, to the more recent phenomenon of political climate change denialism, has made some artists much more forthright about their practice. This is not an opinion. This is not subjective. This is a crisis. Many artists are at exactly that point, as are many people. We're we're listening to the scientists tell us that environmental collapse, even the collapse of civilization, is imminent. I should say that scientists do not agree on what a collapse of civilization might look like or what it is or that we're even headed there in the first place. But humans are changing the world at an alarming rate. And the anxiety surrounding even the possibility of collapse is almost palpable. So in that sense, artists are no different than anyone else. The whole culture has been turning. And I was doing the turning because I was simply living in the present. And what's interesting about this turn is that in some places, it's thinned the line between two things, art and action. Where are the lines between activism and art making? 
That's a very interesting question, and it has a legal implication as well. I'm going to skip over some of the details here. But some art is legally entitled to protection, preservation. And Aviva has used this very concept to create an experimental work, a sort of visual musical opera that theoretically could have delayed or prevented a proposed natural gas pipeline from being built north of New York City. The work is called The Blued Trees Symphony. You can see some photos in our online gallery. It's piece number seven. And we're listening to a bit of it right now. Sounds a little complicated, but it's not. It's a series of one-third mile measures where natural gas pipelines were proposed on people's private property. On those properties, using aerial imagery, Aviva mapped out notes in a symphony. And where each note fell, she and others painted a blue S-shape. A vertical sine wave, S-I-N-E. On a tree that, should this pipeline ever go through, would be designated for clearing. The sine waves were only painted on deciduous trees because paint can hurt the bark of conifers. But the paint that was used was not only non-toxic, it was a casein, which means that the medium to carry the pigment was milk-based. In this case, it was buttermilk. And buttermilk is an ancient Japanese gardening tool to be used to grow moss on rocks. As soon as the trees were painted, the markings become a habitat for moss, which eventually will grow and cover the signs themselves and transform it into an organic living symbol. So one could argue legally that the mark itself, which was only one part of the entire project, was as permanent as the tree. The idea here is to make art that is, in itself, a sort of permanent natural installation, one that might be protected through legal processes, ultimately forcing the developers to either halt or reroute the pipeline. It hasn't worked out that way exactly. That first pipeline, or an extension of an existing one, rather, was eventually built. The blued trees were destroyed. Since then, the symphony has grown, new trees at other locations have been painted, The project has yet to establish the legal protections Aviva had hoped for, and I'm not sure it will. But the music and the artwork survives. Moving on, there are other artists in this gallery who are working much more firmly in the traditions of the past in order to change people's thinking on environmental issues. Other branches that aren't going as far as folks like Aviva, but still have a role to play, I think. You know, I'm, I'm painting places where nature and culture sort of butt up against each other. Um, you know, and the wind farms are, are a perfect example of that. This is Brian Richard, an artist based in Chicago. Think, for example, artists like Van Goyen or Rembrandt, for example, who painted landscapes and often included windmills. You know, you can kind of picture this, I'm sure, in your mind's eye. Everybody has seen an old Dutch windmill painting, right? What I'm doing is very similar to that. Dutch painters were very proud of these structures and saw them as being highly symbolic of man's cooperation with nature and therefore, you know, man's cooperation with God. So, you know, they they imbued a lot of spiritual qualities in these windmills, and I've sought to do the same. This is a pretty simple subversion here, but nevertheless feels radical to me. 
given the degree to which some people see wind farms as a blight on natural landscapes. You can see some examples of Brian's work, by the way, number eight in our online gallery. You may feel that it ruins your view, but maybe you need to change your point of view and get a different view to look at if you want clean air. (laughs) But I do have to wonder, as I walk through this gallery, the age of change, which is bigger than you can possibly imagine, can you measure the impact of any of this work? I mean, as art and activism blur together, do we as consumers or critics have to measure it by the ability to move the needle on environmental issues as opposed to aesthetics? I asked Beverly something kind of along those lines. There's a part of me that wants to be like, oh, who's a person whose work prevented, I don't know, a, a pipeline from being built? You know what I mean? Like, but, but I think that's probably the wrong approach, right? It is. It is totally the wrong approach because it is not about an individual anymore. It is about the seeds that have been scattered by multiple generations of people and multiple groups And suddenly we see something shift, but it's been going on forever. I mean, you know, people in the indigenous nations have been working in resistance for hundreds of years. And that some of the seeds they scattered are finally becoming visible to those of us alive today is remarkable and wonderful. I want to go back to finish off our tour of the Outside In Museum, out in the blustery wind and pale, warm sun. Oh. Uh-oh. Yeah, it's all right. It's just the wind blew it over. Everything is... Because even though this tradition, plain air, is more or less apolitical, everywhere I looked, there were little signs. Signs that Beverly is right, that seeds planted long ago are sprouting up in unexpected places. At lunch, inside the clam shack, This group of artists was chatting about their various trials and tribulations, one of which caught my ear. A sort of rebellion, an accidental one maybe, against notions of ownership. The property owner came up to me and said, leave. He says, you're not going to make money off of my view. So you, this all kind. You've got to be careful. I was just, I just had my iPhone. I just wanted to take photos of this barn scene. And I get out and I park the car, you know, in a legal place that's off the road, but it's not his property. And then I'm walking around and I take my photos. And then on my way back to the car, I hear a gunshot three times. Yeah. (laughs) So, so. The challenge is a plain air paint. That's it. (laughs) And even though all these folks were painting the same nostalgic New England view, a salt marsh and a pretty little colonial house, there was still room to make a statement. Betty's painting especially stood out for one particular choice. Actually, I'm doing a series about the environment. Um, So all the skies are orange or red um, to... Uh, relate to the red sky and morning sailors take warning. It's a bit of a political statement. Even the works that weren't trying to veer into political territory, that have nothing to do with climate, each one is a still life of something that is changing. This salt marsh, for example, it's a landscape that in 50 years might be totally unrecognizable. The little colonial house, underwater. It's the light. This is a perfect time to catch it. 
the sun coming from behind me and picking up these beautiful blues right in here. A woman named Alicia told me that one of the challenges plein air painters face is the urge to keep adapting your work as the light moves, as the sun changes its position. When I was here the last time, it was like my brushes and palette knife was just flying across the canvas. So we try not to chase the light. That's what it's called, chasing the light. (laughs) But this landscape is changing in ways we can't see in a painting. And each of these artists is chasing a whole lot more than light. There was a beautiful blue streak right through here. So I'm just deciding to to capture that. Even though the moment's passed? It's changed already. So everything changes, but I like that blue streak right across here. Produced this week by Taylor Quimby with help from me, Sam Evans Brown, Jimmy Gutierrez, Justine Paradise, and Sarah Ernst. Eric Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is the director of Flying Across the Canvas. Special thanks to Sharon Allen and the Plein Air Painters of New Hampshire. Wait, wait can you say that? Plein Air. Plein, Plein Air Painters of New Hampshire and Hannah Rothstein. Again, if you weren't able to follow along but want to see some of the art that we talked about in this episode, go to our website, outsideinradio.org, or check out our Instagram. And listen, if you would really like to help out the show, but you absolutely, for some reason, cannot support us financially, why not rate us on iTunes? Leave us a happy comment about how much you like art. You know, that makes us feel really good about what we're doing, and we'd love to read them. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Additional music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. It's a good book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it is good.